The scripture lesson this morning, Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. But I'll begin the reading in verse 3 of chapter 1. We thank God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we always pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together." And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, direct us now in your holy word, and may the teaching of the Apostle Paul come to us powerfully this day. May your spirit help us to understand this word And indeed, may we see Christ more clearly and our calling and identity in him. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Whether it's sports, music, fitness, or any number of skills, there, there have to be certain fundamentals that are in place in order to make any kind of progress. The other day we uh, rediscovered a mini set of golf clubs that was in our smaller shed and and Noah got the bag out and was interested in hitting some golf balls in the backyard. Well, what's the first thing you need to know about swinging a golf club? Well, how to hold it. And so I showed him the proper way to grip the club. Or to change the analogy just slightly, there's a there's this three-step process that's followed when teaching various fitness-related movements, which goes mechanics consistency, and intensity. Mechanics, you need to be able to move properly first with the correct form, the right technique. Then comes consistency, which is proper mechanics moving in the correct way over and over again. And then finally comes intensity, 
whether it means moving more quickly or with greater loads and so forth. Now, what might happen if someone who is new and eager jumps right to the intensity part without first developing the proper mechanics and consistency? Well, more than likely, they'll get injured. But also, if they don't learn the proper fundamentals at the beginning, then they're actually limiting their progress later on because they won't have the proper movement patterns. In an article entitled Fundamentals, Virtuosity, and Mastery, the author defines virtuosity from the world of gymnastics as performing the common uncommonly well. And then he goes on to say, There is a compelling tendency among novices developing any skill or art whether learning to play the violin, write poetry, or compete in gymnastics, to quickly move past the fundamentals and on to more elaborate, more sophisticated movements, skills, or techniques. This compulsion is the novice's curse, the rush to originality and risk. The the novice's curse is manifested as excessive adornment, silly creativity, weak fundamentals, and ultimately a marked lack of virtuosity and delayed mastery. If you've ever had the opportunity to be taught by the very best in any field, you've likely been surprised at how simple, how fundamental, how basic the instruction was. The novice's curse afflicts learner and teacher alike. Physical training is no different. What will inevitably doom a physical training program and dilute a coach's efficacy is a lack of commitment to fundamentals. Even as we noted on Ash Wednesday, the scriptures particularly make use of analogies from the world of athletics for the sake of making a point about the Christian faith. And while there isn't a specific sports analogy that Paul makes in our text this morning, nevertheless, the principles conveyed by the author of the article relating to fundamentals and virtuosity as necessary to mastery hold true for the life of faith. The entirety of Paul's letter to the Colossians is an encouragement to them to become more mature, to, to strive for a level of mastery. And last week we considered Paul's marvelous poem, his hymn in verses 15 to 18, where Jesus' lordship over all things, over the totality, is described. A bit more specifically, we see Christ's role in place in creation and his place and role in redemption or new creation. And with our study of Paul's letter thus far, we've noted the challenge in slicing up the text in manageable parts. It's a bit like, you know, trying to grab a piece of pizza and the cheese and toppings from other slices are clinging to it. You know, verses 21 to 23 are integrally connected with verses 15 to 20, but then they're also connected with verses 12 to 14, as well as the section before that. So we'll just have to to savor what's before us and try to make some of the textual connections along the way. One overlapping theme that we can immediately see is the theme of reconciliation from verse 20, which carries over into verses 21 and 22. In the former, Paul refers to Christ's reconciliation of all things, making peace through the blood of his cross, whether that upon the earth or that in the heavens, it envelops the whole cosmos. But here in the latter, Paul describes that reconciliation as having run down into the lives of these believers of this small-town church in Colossae. Paul's first two words, and you are emphatic. And what was their condition before the reconciliation occurred? What characterized their past? Alienation, hostility, and the works of evil. Before Christ, these men, women, and children were estranged, and Paul's language reflects a state of being, that this was their constant condition. 
And we wouldn't be wrong to think of the alienation in similar terms to Adam and Eve's removal from the Garden of Eden. They were estranged from God, and this is what life in sin is like. Paul also describes their past condition as hostile in mind. The term for mind that Paul uses is more than just mere thought, but also refers to the way the mind works, the process of understanding and intellect. It also has a fair amount of overlap with the Old Testament idea of the heart to demonstrate the thinking and mentality of man. So the the hostility is characteristic of the person. He has an enemy understanding, and that naturally leads to the doing of evil deeds, evil works. The entire life apart from God is marred as thoughts and behavior are intertwined and mutually affecting one another. As one scholar observes, chronic sinful behavior twists the mind so that it becomes even more at enmity with God, and the twisted mind hurls us into greater depravity. The depraved mind then commends evil behavior as good or natural or as an alternative lifestyle. It produces and condones fear and suspicion of others and an urge to hurt and destroy them. Those who become enemies of God are sin's lackey and sin inflicts only ruin on them as their lives spiral out of control. And we see this in spades in our society right now, don't we? Some of the absolutely vile things that are being said or done in support of abortion on account of the possible overturning of Roe versus Wade by the Supreme Court proves the point. In a sense, Paul is saying in just a few words here in this verse in Colossians what he more fully expounds upon in Romans 1 and the progression in sin, the maturity in sin that takes place. But even more fundamentally, that there's a conscious antagonism to the only true God. And that antagonism is expressed through unrighteousness in order to do what? Suppress the truth. You know, all anyone has to do is open their eyes and God is plain to them. What he's created testifies as much. But if that's not enough, then look in a telescope and behold what he's made. Look in a microscope and behold what he's made. Or look at a sonogram and behold what he's made. Men are without excuse, as Paul goes on to say. Instead of honoring God and giving thanks, they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts are darkened. And this is the past that Paul describes as being the experience for these Colossian believers. But then notice the strong adversative with which he begins, verse 22. But now, unfortunately this gets lost or muddled in our English translations, but, but Paul speaks in similar terms in other letters, and he's drawing a sharp contrast between their past condition and their present position. But now he reconciled in the body of flesh through his death to present you holy and without blemish and without fault in the presence of him. We've noted already the theme of reconciliation that Paul mentions in verse 20 and that he comes back to here, but pause for a moment and consider the basic definition of what it means to reconcile to restore to friendship or harmony, to reconciliate. To conciliate means to, to, um, to assemble, unite, win over, or appease. Of course, the prefix re can simply mean again or anew. And this language presumes a previous relationship, which, of course, is the case between Christ the Creator and His creation, particularly mankind. So friendship with God, harmony with God is restored through the work of Christ. And Paul uses a unique turn of phrase when he says, in the body of his flesh. Now, there's quite a, bit of, lot, uh, quite a bit of theological freight this carries in the apostles' thinking. 
The body certainly points to the incarnation of Jesus, that he has a real body, which may seem quite obvious. But then the term flesh is often used by Paul to denote being in Adam, to being in a state of sin on account of our natural state in him. While that's not quite Paul's exact use here, he, it does give us a clue. And if we go to Romans 8.3, we get a bit more clarity. For God has done what the law we can by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Let's break it down like this. Jesus, the son, is fully identified with God. And this same Jesus, the Messiah, took on flesh, which means he fully represents and identifies with his people. What's more, in Jesus, God identified himself with the sins of humanity. And now those who are in Christ's body find their sin already condemned in him and themselves reconciled to God. And notice the important qualifier that, that Paul adds, through his death. Again, Paul is tying back into verse 20 and now picking up on the theme regarding the peace made through the blood of the cross. Now, if you think of Paul's writing as symphonic, which you probably should, where you know, the strings introduce a particular theme and now the woodwinds pick up that same thing, but with a slight variation, only later to be echoed again by the brass. That's what we have here. And of course, it's, it's through Christ's death that this reconciliation is achieved. This is gospel 101. This is rudimentary Christianity. It took the death of Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, to bring about this reconciliation with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But notice that there's a further purpose to that reconciliation. To present you holy and without blemish and without fault in the presence of Him. When we hear the terms holy, without blemish, and without fault, where do our minds go or where should they go? Well, to the sacrificial language of the Old Testament. The sacrifices, the animals that would be brought forward for inspection and then used as offerings to the Lord. And what did those animals represent? The worshiper. Remember how he would lay his hand on the animal as a symbolic act of the animals taking his place, of, his being, of being his representative or substitute. An animal without blemish was necessary because the worshiper himself was blemished. The worshiper could only get so close. Well, now that's changed on account of Christ's perfect once-for-all sacrifice. Paul is saying that the Colossian Christians have undergone a change of status. No longer are they those who are alienated, who are estranged from God, not allowed to come before God. They're no longer like Adam and Eve, kicked out of the garden, out of God's special presence in the sanctuary, but are holy. What does holy mean? Well, you know the answer because Paul's already made reference to the status in verses 2, 4, and 12 when calling the Colossians saints. They're holy ones. They're set apart. But again, remember that even more, they have sanctuary access. And now as those who are counted as holy and blameless and without reproach, we can be living sacrifices brought before God's throne. And surely this, this reality is foundational to Christian maturity. Understanding who we are in Christ and the status that he's bestowed upon us in him. You know, isn't this marvelous? To go from being alienated to being able to stand in God's presence, to being fully accepted by him, and all on account of Christ, and nothing needs to be added to this. 
You know, we go from being outsiders to those who get to stand, who are even welcomed into the presence of the king of the cosmos, the one who holds all authority in heaven and earth, the one for whom it's all been made and serves, the one who owns and rules it all, this very same cosmos that he's redeemed. And as a bit of an aside, this is why we stand for much of the worship service, because that's the proper posture when you come into the presence of royalty. You stand. And this helps to train us to show proper respect. And this is why it's also proper for our children to stand when expected and follow the appropriate postures throughout the service. Of course, we kneel for confession of sin, which is fitting, and we sit when receiving instruction, which is also right to do. But then the fact that we get to sit with the king at his table in peace is that much more meaningful to consider, isn't it? From what I understand, sitting in worship is a more recent innovation in worship, um, maybe a few hundred years old, whereas the congregations stood for the vast majority of it uh, for, for many, many years. I've also heard that our Eastern Orthodox brethren stand for the vast majority or all of their worship service. But again, Paul wants the Colossians, he wants us to revel in this reality and notice the intensely personal touch he makes simply by saying, you. Jesus did this to present you, you the church in Colossae, you, the saints in this small town, you, you men, women, and children. Look at the manifestation of God's condescending love for you and what that's resulted in on your behalf. And surely Paul's teaching should so stir our faith as we consider this, even as Paul would say to you, the saints of St. Mark, that Jesus presents you holy and faultless and beyond reproach in his presence. The past has been dealt with, the alienation has been overcome, and the reconciliation has been achieved. And the present status that you have on account of Christ then leads into the future that Christ has for his people. Paul in verse 23. If you remain in the faith, having been firmly established and said fast and not shifting from the hope of the gospel, which you heard that was preached in all creation under the heavens, for which I became, I, Paul, a servant. Now, after the stirring and assuring theology of verse 22, Paul's use of if at the beginning of verse 23 might give us pause, might um, raise a hint of concern in our thoughts. Is Paul somehow leaving it up to the Colossians to ultimately save themselves in some form or fashion? No, not at all. Paul is speaking in covenantal terms. He's speaking in terms of relationship. And we have to recognize that relationships never remain static. They either grow or die. That's the case in our relationships, humanly speaking even as marriage provides an apt analogy. You know, on their wedding day, a man and woman enter into covenant with one another, and their previous relationship and status in relation to one another, to one another changes. No longer are they single, but married, promising to be faithful to one another, which is part and parcel with the cultivation of the relationship over time. If the husband or wife are not faithful to one another, which can manifest itself in a number of ways, then the relationship isn't going to be a healthy one, it isn't going to last. Or consider the covenant Yahweh enters into with Israel at Mount Sinai when giving the Ten Commandments. What's the first thing Yahweh recounts? Redeeming his people out of, out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage. In other words, they're saved. And then what's next? The giving of the Ten Commandments, which acts as Israel's wedding vows, so to speak, in her marriage to Yahweh. But of course, what happens with Israel? Well, she's unfaithful to Yahweh and goes whoring after idols and other gods, bringing God's judgment upon her. See, relationships have responsibilities 
And that's true of our relationship with Christ, which is visibly and officially entered into at baptism. Now, as a wedding ring is a sign that you're married, which means not only that you're committed to a relationship with your spouse, but also that you're off limits to others. Likewise, baptism acts as a sign that you're in covenant with Christ, that he's saved you, and that you are then obligated to pursue the life that has lived in him. One New Testament scholar makes this observation. Paul knows that true Christian faith is the beginning of a life which, given by God, will be brought to completion by him. He also knows that genuine faith is seen in patient and steadfast day-to-day Christian living, while counterfeit faith, so hard in its early states to distinguish from the real thing, withers and dies. From God's point of view, genuine faith is assured of continuing to the end. From the point of from the human point of view, Christians discover whether their faith is of that genuine sort only by patient perseverance encouraged by the Christian hope. The themes of faith and hope that Paul raises echo chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 in his opening remarks of thanksgiving. But Paul is simply telling the Colossians to remain in the faith, to persevere, to tarry in the faith, to abide in it. He's basically telling them that sticking around, that sticking in there is what matters in the kingdom of God. Hanging in there through thick and thin, that's what really counts. And when you do that, you'll continue to grow and mature. And yes, Paul is calling the church in Colossae to do something, but it's mainly this idea of just staying put in the faith in which they find themselves. Note the other descriptions of encouragement and exhortation he uses. Having been firmly established. You know, they've already got a solid foundation. The base is there for them to stand upon. They're to remain steadfast, immovable, settled. The word can even mean sedentary. You know, Paul's clearly telling them not to go anywhere. They're firmly seated on the gospel. And he says, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. You know, don't try to change seats. Stay firmly planted in the saddle, so to speak. And Paul's specific to say that they need to stay firmly rooted and seated in the hope of the gospel that they'd heard. This probably hints to part of the challenge facing the Colossian Christians to think that there's something more that needs to be added to the gospel, whether Judaism or something else. But Paul wants them to be sure that there's nothing else required for their salvation in Christ and that they just need to stay put. And this gospel that they've heard, Paul says, has been preached and has been heralded in all creation under the heavens. The verb tense that Paul uses conveys a completed action. And so we might wonder how the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven when the gospel is still in the relatively early years of going to all the nations. Well, the sense of what Paul may be saying is that the gospel is for the whole world and not just one specific group of people. Another possibility is that Paul's making use of similar imagery as to what we find in Psalm 19, that creation proclaims God's glory. But there seems to be a more specific connection by Paul with the act of preaching and hearing. So perhaps, as one writer puts it, we should understand what Paul is saying to mean this. From whales to waterfalls, the whole created order has in principle been reconciled to God. Like a sovereign making a proclamation and sending off his heralds to bear it to the distant corners of his empire... God has in Jesus Christ proclaimed once and for all that the world which he made has been reconciled to him. 
his heralds scurrying off to the ends of the earth with the news are simply his agents, messengers of this one antecedent authoritative proclamation. And that's what Paul is and basically what he says at the end of verse 23, even emphatically so that he'd become a servant, a minister, a deacon of the gospel. The word that Paul uses is the same one he used of Epaphras in verse 7, placing himself alongside of his co-labor in the gospel, the man by whom the Colossians heard the grace of God in truth. And Paul's gospel and Epaphras' gospel are one and the same. And the Colossians don't need to go looking for anything in addition to the message that they've heard. No, they need to stay put, to stay seated right where they are to remain, to persistently and consistently continue in the faith. And guess what? That's not particularly glamorous, nor is it particularly easy, especially when times are hard, whether because of suffering, persecution, difficulty in relationships, or any number of other reasons. But that's the mark of faith sticking to it. And what Paul is describing is the future that he wants the Colossians to pursue, one of faithfully plodding along and not getting sidetracked by gimmicks, the latest spiritual fad, the latest secret formula that promises amazing results without diet or exercise. And there isn't anything that needs to be added to the gospel. There's no extra dose of the Holy Spirit that you should be seeking out or out-of-body experience or dreams or voices that are needed to make you really excel in the faith. Now, what Paul is calling the Colossians to do, what he's calling us to do, is to give ourselves to the fundamentals of the faith, the basics of the gospel. He wants us to be clear about who Jesus is and what he's done and who we are in him. That's where we have to start. And we can never get away from that. That's foundational. And everything else builds on that. And if we can borrow from the article mentioned earlier, then we, when we give ourselves to the fundamentals and doing them well, then that leads to virtuosity, which then leads to maturity. Again, the point of Paul's letter. Paul is going to go on to give us some more specifics and fill this out even more as the letter proceeds. But, but if you're here this morning, then that's a good indicator that you're persevering. You're sticking it out. And what is worship? Well, it's covenant renewal. It's rehearsing what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ and the great salvation that we have in Him. It's to praise and give thanks for creation and redemption, to ask for forgiveness for the ways in which we've broken our vows, been disobedient. It's to practice, to rehearse the fundamentals of the Christian faith that we are then to put into action when Jesus sends us back out as servants of the gospel. And if we can reduce the gospel to three fundamentals to practice, then let me humbly suggest gratitude, forgiveness, and service. I realize we noted Paul's trio of faith a love and hope in his opening prayer of thanksgiving, and certainly these, are, these concepts are overlapping. But for the sake of discussion this morning, if we as the people of God, as the saints of Christ, give ourselves to these common, less than glamorous qualities and seek to do them uncommonly well, to be committed to them on a daily basis, moment by moment, then that will lead to a virtuosity that will result in maturity. Gratitude being grateful and saying so. Praising God for life and health and strength, giving thanks for the redemption, the reconciliation that has been achieved, 
the peace that has been made through the blood of Christ, through his death upon the cross. Forgiveness. Releasing someone's sin never to bring it up again. Not coming back and throwing it in someone's someone's sin in their face when it's been dealt with, whether spouse, sibling, child, friend, or fellow believer. In chapter 3, Paul exhorts the Colossians, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Consider what you've been forgiven by Jesus. Do you really think you have a right to withhold forgiveness from someone when they ask for it? Have you been wronged so profoundly that their offense against you is somehow greater than your offenses against God? Now, if you understand your forgiveness in Christ, then you'll be ready to forgive and won't harbor bitterness because the offense has been released. It's gone. And then service. Willing to be humble, to love others by serving them, which has a myriad of applications in the mundanity of life but it's simply the basic disposition of being willing to kindly help to, well, probably be inconvenienced and to have an awareness of the interests of others. You know, husbands, are you serving your wife well? Wives, your husbands. Are you setting the right example of service for your children to follow? Children, when mom asks you to put the dishes away, which may be one of your household chores anyway, do you get upset? Do you huff and puff and complain as if you're being so greatly inconvenienced? The other day, Deborah was delayed in getting to school in time to start her PE class, and so I stayed a few extra minutes to supervise the students and get them warmed up for the testing they were doing. In the process of telling them what movements to do, some of the students started to complain. I was a bit incredulous at first, since they were acting like it was a surprise that I was asking them to exercise during the class that entails exercise. And so I soon let them know that my instructions and their movements didn't require their commentary. (laughs) Well, neither should we act surprised that we're called to serve others, to love our neighbor, particularly those with whom we live in the closest proximity. Gratitude, forgiveness, and service. We need more practice. And as we spend time here in worship with the Lord and consider His Word of truth, He makes fundamentals look like this look easy, doesn't He? Maybe so, but we know that Christ's ministry was anything but easy and that He demonstrated His faith in the promises of the Father, being covenantally faithful, obedient to the Father's will. Jesus' faith was steadfast in order to bring about the reconciliation of the world and even of you and me, ushering us into the future of his new creation. So stay put and give yourself to the fundamentals of the faith, more greatly committed to doing them uncommonly well in imitation of your Savior and King, not getting distracted by supposed shortcuts or an easier way. Now keep on course, on this path, which leads to greater maturity in Him. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we do thank You for Your Word and for the impression it makes upon us. And so may You further impress it upon our hearts and lives, that we indeed might be a people who are filled with gratitude, a people who understand forgiveness and are ready to forgive and a people who willingly serve. 
Forgive us wherein we have failed in these things in our lives and direct us to greater faithfulness in the future. May we know and believe that this is the way that you would have us to go, that this is the way of prosperity and truth in you, that this is the way of blessing in covenant faithfulness. Strengthen us for these things we humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen.